Thanks, man. Oh, man. It is a joy to be here with you guys. Did you know if you're a guest, you get a free coffee at the coffee shop? I found that out today. So if you're a guest, it's a good deal. Um, I, I am so excited to be here because you guys are my church family. Even though I've, I've never met many of you, I know one thing about you if you're here. Very likely, you, like me, have had an encounter with Jesus, and that's changed your life, and it's brought you into the family of God, of which I'm a part. So I gather today with my brothers and sisters here. And second, I, I, we're part of the same family in that our churches share a common history, which I think is wonderful. Um, early on, at the very beginning of our church history in El Paso, the, there was a, 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 a leader there, a young man. Uh, his name was Trey Richardson, and he he was one of the kind of the founding leaders of our church, and our church actually sent him to this area for the purpose of gospel work. And so our history goes back many, many years together. And I'm glad that we are family in that our history is continuing together. Um, I'm excited because we have a couple links to what Rich and you guys are doing. We are involved with some of the global mission stuff that Rich does uh, in, in coordinating the efforts of our churches. So we're excited about that, especially... Um, looking at what God's doing right over the border in Latin America is just unbelievable. And uh, Rich and I, even last night, were thinking and dreaming and praying a little bit about, like, man, what could God do in the Southwest part of the country um, as more churches are planted, as we see uh, more disciples made out here? So I'm glad we're part of this, glad we're family together. So uh, let's, with that, if you're not there yet, turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to take you back to a particular date last year. August 3rd, 2019. Now, a week before that date, um, my wife and I had welcomed our third son into the world, um, and it was wonderful, and we were sleep-deprived and uh, still caring for two other kids, and so if you've been through that, you know it's crazy. And unfortunately, Jen, she'd become a, she began experiencing some significant nerve pain issues, so we actually were staying with my parents for a time so they could help care for the kids as well. She was just coming out of that. We're just starting to look over the horizon at what life was going to bring in this next season, when on that Saturday, August 3rd, I got a text message that said, hey, something's happening in El Paso. Uh, you're going to need to like, find, find some news. And so I began to piece together, looking at, you know, different news sources online, that there was an active shooter situation at a Walmart in, in my city. The Walmart's probably eight minutes from where our church meets. And slowly information began to trickle out that more than one person had died. And then it, then it looked worse and worse. Uh, they shut the whole area down. They evacuated the whole area. The shooter was still at large. There were helicopters flying all over the place. There was every uh, law enforcement branch was deployed. It, it really was chaos for a while. And when the dust sort of cleared, 22 people who woke up that morning and just like you and I went to the grocery store to get their stuff, didn't walk out. 22 people died. 24 more injured and wounded. And what emerged very quickly that added to the difficulty of this moment for our city was not just that this was a random shooting by uh, somebody who's just completely crazy. No, the shooter had published a manifesto right before he went in. And in the manifesto, he described that his intent was to kill Hispanics to stop the Hispanic invasion of his country is what he viewed it as. Now, 
as the weeks, as the days and weeks went on, um, it was a slow recovery for our city. For some reasons I'll describe throughout the message. But in that moment, uh, that very next week, as we gathered to sort of, we, we had a kind of a unique service the, the day right afterwards, but that next week we sort of returned to our series in the book of Isaiah. And I just remember feeling beat up. <laughs> you ever like sometimes come to your Bible and you're excited and you're like in faith, like what does the Lord have for me? And sometimes you just drag yourself to your Bible and it's all you can do to open it and say, Lord, please, there's got to be something this week for me. And I remember thinking, is this passage even going to work? Is this, you know, and I remember opening and in God's providence, the Lord had set out for us. The very next passage of scripture was this one, was Isaiah 42, which gives good news to the bruised and the faint-hearted. And that's the passage that encouraged us in the middle of our hour of need. And perhaps for you today, you have kind of dragged yourself here. Maybe you're feeling a bit bruised and faint-hearted as well. Maybe you've, in this last year or a few months, you've experienced a loss of someone that's close to you. Maybe you've experienced a, a deep hurt or physical pain or medical issue or a, a betrayal by somebody close to you or a failure that you set out to do something and utterly failed and evaporated. Or even maybe you're like my Uber driver uh, that, that, w- that I was talking to recently in, in Gilbert, and he said, yeah, he doesn't always make it to church, but this Sunday he's definitely going because of the coronavirus. He's like, yeah, I got to make sure I'm right before that thing hits. And so I thought, well, I guess that's good. You know, I, I, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to respond to him. I invited him in. I didn't think he come. I don't think he came. But um, maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're watching news headlines and you're thinking, what's going to happen to our country? What's going to happen to the world? Maybe you're in the mood. Maybe you're in need of some good news this morning. Well, the good news is that this passage is full of good news for the bruised and the faint-hearted. So let's read Isaiah 41. We're going to read the whole section, and then we're going to walk through this together. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is God's word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison to those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word. Now, This is actually the first of four servant songs in Isaiah, Uh, songs that describe and lay out who the coming Messiah will be. But the the key word that I want us to start with is that very first word, behold. That's what we're going to do this morning. That's what Scripture is driving us to do this morning, behold, meaning to look, to pay attention to, to fill our eyes with 
this Savior that is to come. In, in this passage, God is going to do two things. He's going to invite us to look away from empty things and look to the servant king who never disappoints. So the takeaway I'm hoping you get today is this. In a world of empty hopes and empty saviors, we look to the servant king. We look away from this world of empty hopes and empty saviors, and we look to the servant king. The first point is this. In a world of empty pretenders, we find the real thing. Now, God's people are here in this passage, in this place. They are uh, receiving this from Isaiah either just prior to the exile, and very likely throughout the exile, they would have been referring to the book of Isaiah. And they are in exile in Babylon because they've put their hope in a bunch of fakes. They, they turn to idols. They turn to um, nations that were making them promises of protection. They turned away from the Lord and toward these things. And so Isaiah 41, God still has a concern for his people. He, he lays out in Isaiah 41 why it's a terrible idea to trust idols, to trust other hopes, other saviors other than God. And God is helping them process and understand why they're in exile, but he's also bringing to them a warning not to go back to those gods. He, in other words, the, the people could say, well, listen, those gods, those nations didn't help us. They, they didn't work out, but what if we find others? And the Lord's saying, no, don't do this. Isaiah 41 verse 24 says this about the, the false saviors and false gods. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing, meaning that it's empty. There's, there's nothing there. There's nothing to hold on to. Verse 29, behold, they are all a delusion and their works are nothing. So I love the Lord. He's just super clear. They are nothing. What they do is nothing. There's no substance to grab onto. If you're looking for a handhold, it's not there. Theologian John Calvin points out that lest we judge God's people too harshly and think, okay, well, those pagan, you know, simpletons back in the ancient Near East, they might have made a little wood carving and set it up and worshiped it. We would never do, we're far more sophisticated than that. Theologian John Calvin says this about us, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Scripturally speaking, an idol is when we take something that God has made that is good and then make it ultimate and put it in the place of God in our lives. We, we give it our our time and energy and devotion, and in return, hope to gain something from it. We, we do this, we're, we're experts at this, even in modern America. We, we, we create uh, an image-driven culture full of photography and Instagram, and, and we make an idol out of what people think about us and how they perceive us, and we, we strive after that with, with our devotion and our, I, I remember being on this bus one time and these these like girls were there like 20 somethings and they're do I, I thought what in the world are they doing they're wearing like all this stuff and they're sort of like posing and i realized they're just w driving the trolley taking instagram shots and and they're there for like ever i mean they i mean I, they were on the trolley and then i got off and did something else and then i got back on and i they were still there and i just thought they've been at this for like hours 
And, and you think, okay, well, that's silly. I would never do that. Well, what about business, right? What about materialism? We, we, we get good at like finding ways to make money and rise in through corporate ladders. And, and before we know it, we take something good, which is work, and we put it in an ultimate place. And we say, this is where I'm going to find my fulfillment and satisfaction and life from. I'm going to sacrifice my family and other stuff for this because it's going to give me what I want. See, we do exactly the same thing. Even politically, we, we can do this in kind of an election year. We have one group that's like, hey, well, we're going to, all of our problems in life in the world would be fixed if we could just go back to this idealized version of America, back to what was, and if we could recreate that, then everything would be fine. So we, or the other group says, oh, well, if we could, everything in the past is terrible, if we could create a new utopia, if we could just get these policies in place, then everything would be fixed, and then everything would be fine. And, and in a similar way, we could put our hopes in one of those two things. And to, to us, the Lord would say the same thing. Behold, these things we put in the place of God, they're nothing. And what they do is nothing, meaning they're, they're empty. God exposes the emptiness of these idols. But right there in that moment, he doesn't just say, stop, stop looking there. He says, no, look over here. There is a substantive, real Savior right here that the Lord's going to unveil. Verse 1 says, Behold, in other words, look away. Behold, look how empty those things are. Now, behold my servant. Look at him, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. In this world of empty pretenders, this servant king is the real thing. He's not empty. He is upheld by God himself. He has real power. The spirit of the Lord is on him, full of power. He is chosen by God, delighted in by God. All he does brings the Lord joy. There's no sin or injustice anywhere in him. And this is exactly what we see in the person of Jesus. In fact, there's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he's baptized. And when he's baptized, uh, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes and rests on him. And the, there's a voice from heaven from God the Father that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's, it's like the, the, the Lord is saying, hey, you remember that verse from Isaiah? You're waiting for a, a Savior servant king? It's this one. It's like he couldn't make it any clearer. He puts it in bold, italics, underlined. He's, he is here. He's got a sign on him. That Savior is the real thing. Look to him. This passage today is inviting us to something. If, if you've been perhaps disappointed in life recently, maybe you've, you've leaned on something only to find it sort of give way, or you've, you've looked for handholds in life to find, okay, there's really nothing here. You've experienced a loss or a betrayal or a hurt, and you're disappointed in that moment, that is an invitation to turn from what is empty to the real thing. Today, maybe you're there right now. You have an invitation from the Lord. Don't look at those things. Those things will disappoint you. That career, that arc may not always be up. Your health may not always be secure. And yet, there is one place you can turn to this Savior. All right, second point. In a world of empty help, Tender and individual care. Now, the servant is not just some impersonal force that comes in and sort of accomplishes a broad salvation and doesn't really care about the little people in, you know, 
on the individual level. No, he extends tender care specifically and individually. Look at this. Verse 3, I think one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture says, A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, in this passage, God is going to do some big, kind of universe-shaking, universe-level stuff. But in the middle of all that sort of universal renewal, we zoom like all the way in. If you think of this as the movie, it goes from this giant wide-angle shot to zoom all the way in, not just to a person, not just down to an individual reed or blade of grass or flickering flame. And the, the servant cares for each individual under his care. Look at the two images. Let's break them down. The first one is this bruised reed he will not break. Now, look, I've grown up in the desert, man, and it's probably even more desert than it is here. So I don't have a bunch of reeds like in my backyard. I don't have living things. I've got like a xeriscaped backyard with artificial turf in my backyard. And It is dead. So you have to, if that's you today, imagine with me, desert people, a grassy field, okay? That's going to be important for the purposes of this illustration. Imagine a grassy field, not just a little grassy, but kind of that tall grass in like a meadow or something. And the kind of grass that when you walk through it, you walk through it, you sort of leave, like you can see a trail behind you of smashed, smashed grass, you know, walking through the field. You could see, oh yeah, somebody came through there yesterday. Imagine that. Now, when you're doing that, when you're going through a field or a meadow, you're not like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, grass, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, oh, poor grass. You're just like, whatever. You're just walking through the field. You don't give any of those blades of grass a second thought. And yet, the image here is that the servant doesn't just care about this big worldwide salvation. He cares about individuals, an individual reed, an individual blade of grass. He is... He's aware of that it's been bruised. He's aware of what it needs, and he tenderly, the implication is, will notice it and restore it. You think, what kind of a gardener does that? Even people who are super into the garden, I don't know any gardener friends of mine that are down with like an individual blade of grass with tweezers. Like, oh, here, buddy, let me help you get back up there. And yet, that is the kind of servant and savior and care we see in this verse. Second image is the faintly burning wick that won't be quenched. So the the first image is sort of external pressure that gets applied to smash somebody down. The the second image is internal force that's lacked, internal fuel that runs out, all right? Because candles, they they require, you know, several elements, but they require wick and oxygen and these things. And, And if there's not enough fuel for the candle, it sputters out. So what happens in that case? Well, typically, if you have a candle go out, you just say, okay. I remember officiating this one wedding, and it was beautiful. And there were like a hundred kind of tea light candles behind where, where we were officiating the wedding, and it was just beautiful. But in the middle of the wedding ceremony, if one of the little tea lights went out, we didn't say, whoa, stop the wedding. We have to care for this individual candle here and go over there and tenderly kind of bring the wick back and relight it and say, okay, now we can continue with the ceremony. Nobody cared. It's just like there's a bunch of candles. And yet the image is the Savior cares, the servant king cares. One individual reed, one individual candle, one individual life 
the servant cares about. The, his care is specific. It is individual. Whether or not that, that hurt is some outside force that comes into your life or internally you just feel like you don't have enough fuel to keep going on, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord is aware. Do you know that right here, right now, Every one of us comes in with individual needs, individual hurts, individual places where we've been bruised, the, the weak has stomped on us, and internally we, find, we have places where we think we can't keep going, and yet the Lord for each one of us is aware of exactly those places in our lives. Isn't that good news? He, does, he cares about everything, everyone, the whole universe, and about us. There's this, this beautiful story you should go read if you want more encouragement this week where Jesus, embodying this verse, he's, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die, to accomplish the salvation of the world. He's surrounded by a crowd. In the middle of this kind of pandemonium, a blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, the, and Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, in the middle of this giant mission, stops everything and says, who said that? Isn't that good news that we have that kind of Savior? That when we cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, help me. He stops for one. This servant king knows you today. Third, in a world of empty justice, true and final justice. Now, not only does Jesus care about the individual, he, he feels a mandate to bring justice to the whole world. This is throughout the passage. Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. The servant, within the context of Isaiah, will do what God's people did not do. Now, one of the, the reasons God sent his people into exile is that they were perverting justice. They were, they were essentially saying, listen, we're going to keep these ceremonies and feasts, and, and so God will be happy with us. But you know what? Those of us that have a little bit more money, yeah, we're not going to care about the poor. We're going to actually exploit the poor for, for more wealth. Or people that need care, and Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. No, I mean, the Lord tells us to love our neighbor. Like, well, whatever. The, my neighbor can worry about himself, you know. I'm worried about my, myself. And, and they turned away from justice. They were, they were perverting it. It's this twisted version of justice. And the Lord sees right through it and says, no, that is not justice. That is why the servant king is such good news. And then, sadly, God's people who committed injustice themselves experience injustice in Babylon. Right? They're not in charge anymore. They're under the rule and reign of this dictator and what he does is not justice according to the Bible. And they're aware of it. And, and, and so the, God's people are ready. Man, I wish somebody would put things right. And, and, and God sends this Savior to do what his people failed to do, which is to act with true justice. He will bring forth justice. But here's the thing. The extent of this is to the nations. Meaning, not just a little justice in a little part of, little one corner of the universe, but justice that will sweep everywhere. Verse 4 continues this theme. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Okay, we've gone from the nations now to the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands is, is short for, kind of shorthand, for the ends of the earth, meaning from here all the way through the whole earth to here, he will bring justice. And he's not going to bring justice like quarter of the way and go, man, whew, that's a lot. I think I'm done. 
He's not going to bring it halfway and go, man, okay, at least 50%. No, no, no. He will not stop until it goes from here to here, everywhere. Now, I love this because some Christians try to repaint the servant king, Jesus, into sort of being a very nice guy who his hair always looks like in these kind of Sunday school versions of Jesus that I grew up with, his hair always looks like he's about to be in an ad for a shampoo commercial. It's just this like very luxurious hair. And he's got this beautiful white robe that you're like, how are you walking around in the desert? Like, we live in the desert. You can't wear a white robe and, and that, that look like that at the end of the day. And, and he's just sort of this guy who goes around. He's nice to people. And, and he's just compassionate. And, and you're like, oh, what a nice Jesus. Isn't that nice? And in our modern world, we're kind of like, well, he does the best he can. He helps this person and that person. And he's just kind of a nice guy. No, 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 no. That, that totally misses the true picture of who this Savior is. Even Jesus, in his earthly ministry, had, had that moment where he goes into the temple and clears it out from those who are, who are keeping the Gentiles from coming and inquiring of the Lord and worshiping. Jesus makes a whip and drives all those people out of there, man. And, and the, the, the Scripture says that that picture of, of justice coming to that one little temple courtyard will extend through the whole universe. When Jesus returns from one end to the other, justice will reign everywhere. Maybe you need to hear that today. I know our church needed to hear that. I remember the next week after this gunman came into our city, they finally released the names and pictures of the people that had fallen and were killed. And I remember, and it was this surreal experience because, you know, the paper was suddenly everywhere. And, and on the front page of the paper, it's all these pictures of, of victims. And I just thought, they all look like my grandparents. And, and something happens in your heart in that moment where you feel in your bones like this is wrong. That this guy drove hundreds of miles to come and shoot people that he hates that look like my family is wrong, right? Here's the good news. The Savior King says it's wrong too. He's not unaware of it. Look, maybe today you need to hear this. When, when Jesus sees people that are targeted by a gunman because of the color of their skin or their country of origin, it is injustice and he hates injustice. When Jesus sees wealthy men use power and influence to sexually assault women, he hates it. When Jesus sees legal loopholes exploited with corruption, he hates it. When Jesus sees people slandered and their good names unjustly destroyed, he hates it. And the good news of this passage is that not only does Jesus see injustice and hate it, he will bring justice once and for all from one end of the universe to the other. On the cross, Jesus bore the justice of God for our sins. And when he but his work's not done. When he returns, that justice will spread from one end to the other. And there will be two options. Either people will bear the justice that they deserve, or if they've put their faith in Christ, Christ will have borne the justice for them. That's how utterly committed the Lord is to justice. If you long for justice today, if you've hoped in something and seen it corrupted or destroyed, look to the Savior. All right, fourth, in a world of empty salvation, a complete 
an all-encompassing Savior. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Now, one important note here is that it can be confusing. Like, well, who's, who's talking to who here? What, is this us? Is this Israel? What, what's happening here? Well, seems as though the best way to understand this is that this is God the Father speaking to the servant, God the Son, saying, I'm the Lord. I've called you as the servant in righteousness. I will give you to this mission. Meaning, he's going to take the Son and and commission him in this way to be a a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to bring out the prisoners, right? This, This salvation is the commission of the servant king. This is what he will accomplish, now, here's, I wish I could go through every single word here because it's so rich, but a couple things I want us to note about this salvation. This salvation is incredibly wide and incredibly deep. It's incredibly wide as we've seen throughout here because it doesn't just apply to this one ethnic people. It says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, meaning the salvation that the servant brings will not just be offered to God's ethnic people through the covenant, but will be offered as a light for all the nations, meaning all those who are non-Jews, all those outside of the ethnic family of God, any of them who call on the Lord, who call on the servant, will be saved. This is going out to everyone, not just to someone, not to an individual. My wife's grandmother is from Cape Cod, and so if you go to Cape Cod up in the Northeast, there's all these awesome old lighthouses, and kind of, they're kind of cool now, but you got to remember, okay, back when these things were built, there was no, like, radar. There's no satellite positioning. The only way you knew in, in a kind of a foggy environment that you're going to run into the shore, into rocks, and kill yourself and your entire crew was that lighthouse, and that lighthouse was both a, watch out, this is dangerous, as well as an invitation, meaning it would, it would tell you where you were so that you could come in the correct way and find yourself safely home. In a similar way, this light for the nations shines out both as a warning, hey, justice is coming, but also an invitation that anyone, it's not as though it's, it, the lighthouse is in a color only ethnic Jewish people can see. The lighthouse is for everyone to say all who want to, all who put their faith in the Savior, come find a safe harbor. It's incredibly wide. So for you today, perhaps you're here and you're thinking, okay, Jesus would never, he can't save somebody like me. I mean, maybe this person, maybe that person, but not somebody like me. No. It's incredibly wide. It's for anyone. But it's also incredibly deep. Look at this image. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Meaning the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves. What what happens in idolatry is is we say, okay, I'm going to worship and serve, let's just say, money. Getting more money, more wealth, more material, more luxury, more whatever. I'm going to pick that. And we think, okay, I'm choosing this. And I, and I, can, we're like an, we, like, I can stop anytime I want. If I don't want to pursue money anymore, then it's not a problem. And yet, what happens? Money sinks its teeth into us. That idol sinks its teeth into us. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing things, sacrificing things, sacrificing family stuff in a way that we never thought because what happens, we become enslaved to it. Or perhaps the opinions of others, we want everyone to really like us. 
we want to look good, and so we, we start dressing a certain way, doing a certain thing, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves constantly anxious, constantly worried, constantly wondering if this Instagram picture we put up is going to get the same number of likes that the picture got last week, and so how do I get more? It seems like people are liking the pictures less. Does that mean that they like me less? And we find ourselves enslaved to that. And the Lord sees it. The Lord knows it. In the deepest parts of our hearts, we have chains around us. And yet the Savior does this. He goes down into the darkest depths of our heart and breaks the chains. He brings the prisoners up from the dungeon. In our bondage to sin and Satan and the world, the Savior breaks those chains and brings us back out into the sunlight. This is a deep salvation that goes down to the deepest parts of who we are. Now look, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this invitation, this light is shining out for you, that you today, no matter who you are, can look to Jesus and believe. Scripture says that Jesus died in the place of sinners like you and me for our sins, that if we believe in him and trust him and put our faith in him, we might find ourselves freed. We might find our eyes opened. Look to him today. Look to him. You've been looking to something, and my guess is it's probably not going very well. Look to him today. This, is, this offer is still on the table even hundreds of years later. All right, last and finally, five. In a world of empty power and unstoppable, unbreaking power. Now, the Lord's made a lot of promises so far, right? That he's giving a real Savior, that, that this Savior is going to care for individuals very specifically, that he'll bring justice to everyone, that his salvation will be whole and complete and all-encompassing. He's making all these promises. How do we know he's going to keep them? Maybe God's people, I think we're asking something similar. Like, well, how do we know? Babylon, the country we're under the, the thumb of, seems so powerful. Their empire stretches from this end of the earth to the other end of the earth. How do we know that God can actually do these things? Well, God helps them. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Look, if you're, if you're gonna hire somebody from for one of your companies and you've got a big job in the company for them to do, you're going to look at their resume and say, okay, is there anything on this resume that makes me believe you're going to be able to do this? This is a big job over here, all right? This is, in a sense, the resume of the promise-making God. Like, well, God, can you really do this? Can you really come through with all these things? Justice from one end of the universe to the other seems pretty big. He says, okay, here's the resume. I created all the stars in the universe, Maybe you've heard of black holes. That was some of my work. Quasars, pulsars, galaxies, superclusters. That was me. I spread out every mountain range on the earth. I plumbed every depth of the earth. And oh, in addition to that, I give life and breath to every human being and every creature walking around at any time, anywhere. I'm keeping the atoms operating correctly. I'm keeping gravity going. That in and out breath you just took, that's me sustaining life. And you think, well, that's a pretty good resume. Like, I feel like, I feel like this guy could probably get it done, right? If he's making these promises, 
we want to know, can he keep them? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, he can keep them. Look, I... I had this experience one time where I was at an airport and I was on a layover and something got messed up with my plane and I was trying to get to my final destination. And so, you know, sometimes you go up to the airport attendant and the gate attendant and they're just not sympathetic to you. Like you can, you can, you're walking up trying to gauge, is this like a friendly face? And sometimes they're like the scowlers and you're thinking, oh, not a scowler. And so you come up and I remember going up and explaining my problem. I was supposed to be on this flight and then this happened and I got to get to this place by this time. And, and the, really the person was remarkable. They were like, oh, oh, wow. And I said, you know, I'm describing it. And they, at one point they were like, oh, wow. Oh, that's terrible. And I was like, yeah. And so then I tried to get on this flight and this, this happened. And, and so they're just listening compassionately, compassionately. And so finally you get to the end of this five, 10 minute story. And I say, so can you help me? And they say, yeah, no. And I said, well, isn't there something you could do? And they're like, not really. There's not really anything I could do. Could you call someone? No. Like, and you're just thinking, okay, that was worthless. Like, I'm not, I appreciate you being compassionate, but if you can't actually get anything done, I'm not going to spend 10 minutes telling you the story. And in a similar way, sometimes we're like, okay, God's compassionate. He cares for us. But what can he really, does he really have the power to, to strengthen us when we feel weak? Does he really have the power to give us when we feel faint-hearted? Does he really have the ability to pick the bruised up, to accomplish salvation, to bring light to our darkened eyes? Does he really have the ability to do all these things? Yes, he does. Verse 8 says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. That name is is. Yahweh, I am who I am. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The Lord gives one final illustration of his power, which is this. Everything that he's told his people would happen had happened. Therefore, everything that will happen, he can easily see and speak into existence. Just this book, okay, just look at just Isaiah itself. This book correctly predicted the fall of Israel's northern kingdom to Assyria. This, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, there's a previous book, but the, the Bible itself predicted the fall of the northern kingdom. It predicted the fall of the southern kingdom. It predicts the coming of this Persian king Cyrus. It predicts this book and Isaiah itself predicts someone's going to be born. They're going to be born in this place. They're going to not have anything to attract us to himself. They're going to die on a tree. They're going to be a curse. They're going to die substitutionally for the people of God. They will not stay dead. All of these things are predicted in this book. And sometimes we're looking back and we're like, but can God really keep his promises? And you realize this is, this is, this is hundreds, thousands of years of history of God's promise-keeping ability. So if he promises that justice will reign from one end of this world to the other, it'll happen. If he promises that if you're a bruised reed, he can give you strength again, it'll happen. If he promises that if, when you're faint-hearted and have no power in yourself, that, that he can bring power, it will happen. So let me summarize and end this way. Sometimes when we put our hope and trust in something and find ourselves disappointed, it can be a very good thing because it's an invitation to put our hope where it should lie. You know, before the shooting in El Paso, we, we took a lot of pride and comfort in the fact that we were the safest city in America. We won like safest city in America multiple years running. 
safest city in America, over like a half million people. So that's a lot of people. And so in 2018, we felt really good that out of 800,000 people, only, there were only 23 murders in all of El Paso in 2018. And we think, wow, that's safe. That's, that's great. That's wonderful. 2019, one day, 22 go down. Right? You start to lose that safety, that security, that thing that we're leaning on as a city kind of gets pulled out from under us. But for us, let me just testify to this. For us as a church and for us as Christians, it was wonderful and marvelous the way that the Lord used that moment to invite us to trust in Him, not in a statistic, not in our law enforcement, not even in all these good things He's given to us, but rather to say, everything else is empty. Everything else is, is, it can't ultimately keep His promises, but there's one person who can, and His name is Jesus. So if that's you today, brother or sister, look to Him. He's the only one that will never disappoint you. He's the only one that will never leave you. He's the only one that always keeps his promises and the only one that right now today is aware of your individual burdens and would like to lift them. So would you, would you pray with me? We're going to pray the Lord would do that right now. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray specifically for anyone that's come in that's felt bruised, that's felt faint-hearted. They, they've either been stomped on by external circumstances or internally they just feel like they can't keep going. Lord, I pray right now by the power of your spirit, you would begin to give comfort. You'd begin to give life, to lift their eyes again. And as they behold the Savior, find their burdens lifted, find their hopes increased, find their, their, their deepest longings known and met in Christ. Lord, I pray that, that Center Church would be a church fixed on Jesus. And as they are fixed on Jesus, week to week, year to year, that you would meet their needs abundantly, that you would bring good news to the bruised and brokenhearted as you always do. Amen.